in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening. And there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth spread vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth and it was so the earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind and god saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day and god said let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the uh, in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so and god made two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars and god set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Amen. Today we get the joy of beginning a sermon series through the book of Genesis. This is going to be the longest sermon series that I've ever taught. Uh, hopefully not the longest sermon that I've ever taught, uh, but could be. Um, but the longest sermon series that we've ever gone through as a church family, we're going to be in Genesis for almost an entire year. After we get done with Genesis, we will, and we really need to do that because it's hard to do Genesis justice if you don't spend that much time in it. After we get done with Genesis, we're going to be hopping into the book of John, and that's going to be another marathon. So hopefully you're signed up for, uh, for to, to, you know, stick around for a little while so we can pour into you with the word of the Lord. When we come to Genesis, the temptation for many of us is to treat Genesis like a science textbook. And so we get to this and we have all these questions about evolution and creation and all of that sort of thing. Many Christians are kind of like uh, Kenneth from, the, uh, from 30 Rock. 
Do you know you guys know Kenneth from 30 Rock? Uh, he's a, a Southern conservative, uh, evangelical NBC page who is an intern at NBC on this sitcom. And he's uh, asked if he likes science. And he says, I loved science in school. That's when we studied the Old Testament, which is funny. I'm going to teach Genesis as I understand Genesis. And just so you know where I'm coming from, my background is not in science. My background is in the Bible. I'm a pastor. You might even be able to say I'm a theologian. I have a doctorate in applied theology, so we can go that direction. Um, I love Genesis. I think it's so rich and so fruitful. I'm not going to be able to answer every scientific question you have about it, though. The stuff that I quote from science, I haven't taken a science class since I was in high school. Uh, so the stuff that I quote from science is going to be stuff that I've been learning from reading and from talking with others and from studying. Uh, but it's not stuff that is my expertise. Uh, I, I did not study that uh, in higher education. But there are people in our congregation who did. So Jonathan, the, the gentleman who was reading the scripture for us today, who's hosting the, the Hebrews Bible study, he's got a PhD in evolutionary biology. And he also has a master's in, in molecular biology and another master's in, in evolutionary biology. He's also working on another one in New Testament apologetics. Um, so he's very well versed in answering every question uh, that you might have. And so what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is after the worship gathering, uh, about 10 minutes after the worship gathering, five, 10 minutes, enough time for you to grab some coffee and a bagel. We're just going to meet right back up here and have a Q&A session. And I can try to answer some of your questions, but if they're more detailed than what I can get into with evolution and whatnot, Jonathan is your man, and he's going to do such a great job helping us do that. He started a ministry called uh, talkaboutdoubts.com, and uh, so he, he does this all the time. I'm just so glad that he's part of our church to help us uh, with some of these deeper questions. So as you come to your questions, you have your Genesis journals, just write your questions right there in your journal and bring them with you later. And uh, we, you'd probably be surprised how many people have the same questions that you do. As I said, Genesis is not primarily meant to be a science or ethics textbook, but Genesis is primarily about God's grace and his kindness. As we read Genesis, we, we get the answers to some of our deepest questions, like, who am I? Why did God make us? What's wrong with us? Why is the world so broken? And as we read Genesis, we see shadows of Jesus. Jesus is on every page in Genesis, and we're going to read Genesis very differently than those who might share this as a sacred book. You know, Muslims and Jewish people share Genesis as believing it's a sacred book, but we do not believe it's saying the same thing as everybody else. We see Jesus on every page, and it's beautiful to see that, and so my prayer as we dive into Genesis isn't merely that we get all of our questions answered, but it's that we see the creator God face to face, that we might know him that we might be filled with awe and worship as we examine and as we see the God who created the universe, that we might engage with them. So let's look at it. In ancient times, it was custom to name a book by its opening words. So the Hebrews just did just that. And so up until about 250 BC, the book of Genesis was known by its Hebrew name, which is just the first word. It just means in the beginning, and it's Bereshith. Everybody say Bereshith. Bereshith. That's how they called it for years and years until it was translated into Greek in the year 250 BC, and it took the name Genesis, which means in the beginning. So it's the same meaning. And then the Latin kept the same word um, as Greek, as we know Latin and Greek are very uh, closely related. 
I know a lot of people, in fact, many of you probably, that when you set out to read the Bible, you start with Genesis. And that's not a bad place to do it. If I was going to recommend where you start, I would recommend with the book of John. But if you start with Genesis, it's totally fine. But I know a lot of people who they get into the book of Genesis and they get about halfway through and then they give up because it gets hard and there's some chapters in there that are difficult. And why would you expect it to be anything else? It's a 3,000-year-old book. What other 3,000-year-old books are you just picking up to casually read? Not many. And so when we look at Genesis, we had to put on the lenses and the ears of those who originally heard the words. But let me promise you, Genesis is anything but a dry textbook. It is anything but a dry story. The stories in Genesis have enthralled listeners for millennia. The stories of Adam and Eve, of Cain and Abel, of Noah, of the Tower of Babel, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. These stories have filled our collective imaginaries for 3,000 years. How many stories do we know that borrow from these stories? And even you might think about it like this. It takes a pretty good book for them to turn it into a movie. How many movies have been made about Genesis? And that's only been in the past 100 years. People have been imagining from the stories that we have in Genesis for millennia. They are vivid and amazing. Don't let the fact that you've heard them before take that away. So what I'm going to do as we start now is I'm going to read the first two verses of Genesis. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes as I read these. And I want you to envision what I'm reading with a, with a kind of a fresh mindset as if you've never heard it before. Just envision this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, you can open your eyes. Now, when you heard that, I don't know exactly what you thought of, but I just want to point out that it's a cross-cultural experience for you when you listen to this. When you hear this, what you probably thought of, as I said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is you may have thought about the expanse of space. space. And then you thought about, sorry, I just have to. And then you thought about, uh, it's like space has an echo. I don't know. There's no echoes in space, though. It's a vacuum. Who knows? Um, there's, uh, you thought about the expanse of space, and then you saw the globe right there. If you thought of that, raise your hand in some, in some form. I just want to tell you that you're a 21st century person. That's what a 21st century person would think of. But guys, we've only known what the globe looks like. We've only seen the globe for the past like 50 years, 60 years. The first picture of the earth from outer space was in 1960. And so Modern, this is a modern phenomenon that people would think of the earth floating as this round orb in the sky. An original hearer would hear, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it would be very clear what they're talking about. In the beginning, God made the stuff up there and the stuff down here. Because that was the world that they were existing in. Does it mean that God made less than the, the space and universe and everything? Absolutely not. I think that this is certainly talking about the fact that God made everything. 
But in the beginning, when we hear this, he made the stuff up there and the stuff down here. And it was without form and void. Now, don't let the oddness of that statement go past you. When I think of that with my eyes closed, I think of the earth floating around. Okay, I'm thinking of the earth in space floating around. And then the next thing I know when I say without form and void, okay, the earth gets like sucked into a jello. That's what I think of when I, when I read that. That's the way I, I, hear it. I hear it. But to an original reader, they would understand that very clearly because the words that are used for without form and void are kind of like it was wild and it was a wasteland. So in the beginning, God made the stuff up there, and he made the stuff down here, and it was a wild wasteland. It was like a desert. It was, it was chaotic, is the way that you would read it. Without form and void, there was nothing there, nothing of note. When God created the universe, it was completely uninhabitable. That's what it's saying. It was chaotic, yet God was there. He has always existed. You know, this is actually a little encouraging. That uh, when God creates, he makes, he makes a mess at first. Uh, tell that to my wife when I'm trying to put together Ikea furniture. I need to make a mess in order to create this thing. And God does the same thing. He makes a little bit of a mess. It's a chaotic wilderness without form and void. And then he brings order from the chaos, which is really like the story of all of our jobs, is it not? Every one of us, we have world that is chaotic and we're trying to bring order to it and that's what it means to be made in the image of god and we're going to get more to the image of god in like two weeks but we're bringing order from chaos and that's what it means to work secular society says that creation is all that there is that these chairs and these things and money and the things of this world is all that we have to live for but right here in the first verse of the bible written over three thousand years ago says no there's more that there's a God who has always existed and that you have more to live for than the things that he has created. He is the creator that we worship. It continues, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. Everybody say ruach. And the Greek word is pneuma, which I'm or pneuma, which would be the better way to say it, but there is a P at the beginning. Um, or if you like math, a pi at the beginning. Um, and the word for ruach and pneuma, they mean the same thing, basically. They can all be used as either meaning spirit or wind or breath. It's this word that we have three words for in English, but they only had one word for it in the ancient languages. And so when we get to this passage where it says that the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, you will understand the play on word that he's doing here. He's saying that the breath of God was hovering over the waters. And then you get to verse three and it says, and God said. So the breath of God was hovering over the waters and then he spoke. The, The breath started to work. Our God is a God who speaks and by his speaking, he creates. Let's not go too fast here. When's another time that you can think of the spirit of God hovering over the waters? But at the baptism of Jesus, when he also hovered down, fluttering like a dove, and the voice of the Father speaking, creating, once again, recreating Genesis 1, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
We have a recreation of Genesis 1 right there at the baptism scene of Christ. And right here in the first two verses of the Bible, we have the most essential. I'm, I'm ready to say that. Capital T, capital H, capital E. The most essential doctrine. Most fundamental, should we say, doctrine to all of Christianity. No doctrine is more important than this one. This is the foundation that they all are built upon. Is it penal substitutionary atonement? No, that one is important, but not as important as this one. And it's this, the Trinity. We see it right here in the opening verse of the Bible. You see God the Father speaking the world into existence. And you see the Spirit hovering over the face of the deep. But where's Jesus? He's there also. And the New Testament makes it really clear that he's there. In the beginning, he's there. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, he says, And yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So God is creating the universe through his agent, who is Jesus Christ, which is the word of God. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus Christ, the word of God, the creative agent of God, right here in Genesis 1, Colossians 1, verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, talking about Jesus, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Our God is a triune God. He has lived in community through eternity past, and he will continue to live in community through eternity future. And that is the promise of Christianity. Not simply that you can know God, but that you can be invited into the life of the Trinity, the eternal dance that they've been dancing forever of love and joy that they've had and satisfaction with one another. All human community pales in comparison to the love and companionship that there is within the three made one, the three that are one, the Trinity. And we're invited into it through our union with Christ. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this beautiful scene where Aslan sings creation into existing. It's in The Magician's Nephew, which I'm going to do another bold statement here. It's the sixth book, okay? It's not the first, it's the sixth book. But it's a, a beautiful story of Aslan creating the universe and, and he's singing. You can see the music go forth from his, his mouth and the earth starts to become formed and organized and the, the plants start to sprout out. Aslan is this God figure in, in the book. But I think the story that the scriptures tells even better, I don't think C.S. Lewis can even touch it because here we see the, the Godhead, the three in one, and they're not just singing, but they're singing in harmony with one another, bringing forth the life of the world. It's this beautiful picture of how our God creates. Now, the rest of this passage is a description of God's creation over the course of six days. So how are we supposed to understand that? Uh, we're, in, we're in Somerville, Massachusetts. A lot of you went to MIT and Harvard. You're very scientifically minded. How are we supposed to understand it when the scripture says that God was creating the world in six days? I, I want to just say as a disclaimer first, that there have been many great theologians who have believed 
that this was a literal six days, that God created the world in six literal days. People like Augustine, people like John Calvin, people like Francis Schaeffer, who am I to argue with these guys? Who am I to argue with them? I, I am no, no one to argue with them. But at the same time, I don't agree with them. I, I think that it is orthodox, scripturally speaking, that you can look at the scriptures and say that that must be what it's teaching. But I think that what science has revealed to us, you take both special revelation and general revelation of what God has taught us through the sciences, and you have to see how they work together. It's not to say that science is more important. I'm just saying that you look at what the scripture's teaching, and unless there's a reason not to believe the science, then you can. The important thing that we have to do when we come to Genesis chapter 1 is we have to keep our eye on what is God trying to communicate here? What is his intention? Was he intending to communicate that it was six literal days, or was he intending to communicate something different? My wife and I were hosting a group of friends a few weeks ago, and all of these friends, none of them were Christians. They were all from many different backgrounds, uh, actually probably more Muslim than, than any other background, but mainly secular uh, for, for the most part. And they uh, were asking about our faith because they knew that I am a pastor. And they were asking specifically how I understand the Bible. And they said, do you take a, a more literal understanding of the Bible or a more figurative understanding of the Bible? And my question had to, and my answer had to have frustrated them because I said, well, that's a trick question because I think the Bible sometimes is trying to be figurative and sometimes the Bible is trying to be literal. And so I take the form of the Bible that the Bible wants me to take. That's how I understand it. When the Bible wants me to understand it as literal, I understand it as literal. When it wants me to understand it as figurative, I understand it as figurative. For example, when Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh and that he pleaded with God three times to remove it, I do not believe that his problem could have been solved with a good pair of tweezers. I think that he was speaking figuratively about a thorn in the flesh. Or when Jesus said, I am the true vine. I don't have a mental picture of Jesus planting his feet in the ground and growing long arms like Groot. The Bible has times where it's certainly figurative. When you read the Psalms, you understand them figuratively. There's word pictures, images that you have here. And so when we come to any scripture, any passage of scripture, we have to ask ourselves, what is the genre of this scripture? What is it trying to communicate? For example, if you watch The Office, yet you did not understand that it was a mockumentary, but instead you thought it was a documentary, you would be appalled. There would be no laughter. You would be reporting Michael Scott to the authorities. You would be saying, why did anybody make a TV show about this? This is a terrible place of workplace abuse. We have to understand the genre as we come to the scripture. And so when we get to Genesis 1, what is the genre of Genesis 1? And it is probably the trickiest question of genre throughout all of the scriptures. I don't think it's exceedingly clear. As you look at it, we, we basically have two choices. It can be literal prose, literal narrative prose, or it can be poetry. And as you read it, there's several reasons to take it as literal narrative prose. First of all, every time that someone quotes Genesis 1 in the scriptures, they quote it as if it is narrative, as it, if it is prose. Additionally, the Hebrew of this chapter 
looks like prose. It does not have many of the, sig the, the signatories of poetry. But certainly, no one has ever claimed that Genesis 1 was intended to be an exhaustive summary of creation. It is one page long, folks. It could not be an exhaustive description of everything that happened in the creation of the universe. It's impossible. And so there has to be some figurative, some summation that's going on here. And while it's understood as narrative by those who read it, the prose is really unusual. Genesis 1 is an unusual chapter. There's these refrains, these repeated statements that keep on coming up. For example, seven times it says, and God saw that it was good. Ten times it says, God said. Ten times it says, let there be. And seven times it says, and it was so. These repeated statements come with poetic language. In verse 16, it says, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Why didn't he just say sun and moon? Those were words that the author had at his disposal. He could have just, if he was trying to write a dry narrative prose, he would have just said sun and moon. But instead, he uses this exalted language of the greater light and the lesser light. Genesis 1 doesn't really follow the natural order of things. When you look at day one, he says, let there be light, but there's no sun until day four. When you look at day four, that's when the sun is made. But haven't we already had three days? And how do we measure a day without the sun? There's vegetation on day three but yet the, the atmosphere is created on day four. And could God have done it all these ways? He could have. Yes, I believe that God is omnipotent. He, he could decide to make the world like this, but that's his choice. But then when you get to Genesis 2, it seems to contradict Genesis 1, because what we have in Genesis 2 is almost a summary of what's happening in Genesis 1, but yet it's more narrative certainly more narrative and it tells us the story of creation once again but yet it gets some things out of order because in genesis 2 5 it says that there's no vegetation because there was no rain yet in genesis 1 we do have vegetation before rain how are we to understand this how are we to what are we to make of all of this what is it Genesis 1 does not easily fit into the category of poetry, nor does it fit into the category of prose. And I think that if we look at Genesis 1 the way it's intended to be understood, it's as this special, exalted, uh, this, let me, highly exalted poetic narrative. I think that they have merged the two, and we have this poetic narrative where it's meant to be understood as what really happened but it's not meant to be understood as the only thing that happened or exactly how or when it happened. So is Genesis teaching that the world is only a few thousand years and was created in six days? No, I don't think it's necessarily teaching that, but is Genesis teaching that the world is millions and millions of years old? It doesn't really say anything about that either. When we look at the scripture, we have to take it for what it says. Now, we have from general revelation from, from scientists an understanding of how old the earth is. And I think that more recent discoveries have made it really hard to hold a six-day creationism view. Looking at carbon dating, 
looking at, we know that there are stars that are like millions of light years away. And so did God make the light that was traveling from the stars to the earth at the same time? Because we still wouldn't be seeing any stars if he didn't make the light already in the process of coming, if it was in a sixth day. So I think that there's reason to take it as exceedingly old as we read this. But I think that Genesis 1, it's just not primarily about that. I, that's questions that you should come with, with to the, the Q&A later to get more information on those. But I just don't think that's the main point of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is not about when the world was created, but how and why it was created. It was created by God through his word for his own glory so that we might live with him. This was the purpose and the how and the why. I think the Genesis 1 is giving us this literary framework to understand God's created work. And if you look at it, there is a, a certain framework that's being taught here. You think about this in two columns, day one through three in one column, day uh, four through six in the other column. On day one, the, uh, God said, let there be light. On day one, he's forming the heavens. On day four, he's filling the heavens with sun, moon, and stars. On day two, he's forming the sea and the sky. On day five, he's filling the sky and the sea with fish and birds. On day three, he's forming the dry ground. On day six, he's filling the dry ground with animals and humans. He's forming and he's filling. He's bringing order from chaos. And each of these days was also written specifically uh, the the. Um, tradition tells us that Moses wrote this as they were traveling, uh, wandering around in the desert as they have left Egypt. And I think each day is written specifically to say there's one God. There are not many gods and not everything is God because he's coming out of Egypt where they worshiped many gods. They worshiped a sun God. They had animals that served as gods. And so as Moses is writing this, he says, on day one, the gods of light and darkness are dismissed. On day two, the gods of, ski, of sky and sea are dismissed. On day three, the gods of earth and vegetation are dismissed. On day four, the sun, moon, and star gods, they are no more. Our God has surpassed them all. There is one God. These gods, these things are things that our one God has created. They aren't each gods. On day five and six, the ideas of divinity within the animal kingdom are dismissed. Our God created those things. He is above those things. He is better than those. So in the beginning, there was God, one God. And then God spoke the universe into existence. It's amazing how science has started to back this up even more. Before recent times, many scientists would say the alternative to God creating the universe would be that the universe has always existed. But recently we can look at stars and the planets and understand that the universe is expanding that everything is moving away from each other and because the universe is expanding it leads one to draw the conclusion that there must have been a beginning point to the universe they're moving away so there must have been a beginning point a central event where the universe was created and it seems like this universe was very intentionally created, designed, fine-tuned. There are a variety of fundamental constants and standards of the universe that have been very carefully fine-tuned to support life. Professor William Lane Craig, um, 
talks about these. He's an apologist. He's really fantastic on this type of thing. He, he mentions one of those fundamental constants and standards in which there are probably a dozen of. He mentions one of them um, being gravity. And he tells us that if the gravitational constant varied by just one and 10 to the 60th parts, that's a one with 60 zeros or um, none of us, I think that's right. My scientific notation might need help. It might be a 10 with 60 zeros. It's around there, okay? But without that, life would not exist. We would not exist. It had to be finely tuned to that much, that degree of certainty. In your body, you have one or you have 10 to the 20th, one times 10 to the 20th, whatever the scientific notation is for that, cells in your body, one with 20 zeros. That's how many cells. This is way more than that, 60 zeros. It's not, you can't even say three times that. It's like way more, it's exponential growth from there. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would have either expanded or thinned out so rapidly that no stars would form life. No storms would form and life couldn't exist or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. And there's several factors like this. Scientists are aware of these factors. One scientist um, at the University of Cambridge, Mar uh, Martin Rees, he's a world renowned uh, astronomer. He recognizes these and he says, actually, it's very hard to understand why that the universe is like this, because there's several of these concepts that have to be exactly the way that they are. And so there's three choices for how it ended up this way. One, it was chance, but almost all scientists reject chance. Absolutely. They say chance is it's impossible. The chance is too small. It would never happen that way. Now, another option is that it was fine. It was it was designed to be like that. And many scientists, Martin Rees even acknowledges that many scientists take that viewpoint, that it was designed to be like that. Or third, and this is what uh, Dr. Rees believes, is that there is a multiverse and that there's a, an infinite number of different, um, of different possible universes that could be out there. And we live in one of the ones that is habitable. Now I'm here to tell you that Jobu Tapaki, and Dr. Strange would be a lot more boring if their theories were based on reality. Because in reality, when you look at the multiverse, you're looking at millions of billions, an infinite number of completely uninhabitable universes where the, the constants would not support any type of creation or life. I tell you all this, not because it's like, incompatible with Christianity, but, but really what I want to tell you is um, when your choices are between believing that the universe was designed by a God or in a Marvel movie, and not even one of the best ones, okay, when those are your choices, it starts to make belief in God not look so crazy. It starts to make it not look not so crazy. In fact, there's this narrative that we think that we think people have this mindset. I used to believe those religious fairy tales, but then I'm, I grew up and I realized that science is all that there really is. And that's powerful until you realize that that's not what scientists even believe. In her book, Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, she, she, in her book, Confronting Christianity, she lists off at least 10 MIT professors 
who are Christians. You're, and I'm not, she lists their names. I'm not going to do that because like we live in their community. You guys might know these people, okay? I'm like outing them in front of their peers. Um, but you wouldn't be alone. When I tell people around Boston that I'm a pastor, um, they say, oh man, I, I don't meet many religious people in the area. And I say, oh yeah, there's dozens of us. And you and I know that that's not true though. You and I know that God's actually at work in our city, that he's doing things here, that he is the God of the universe, that he created the world, that this city belongs to him and that we belong to him and he will continue to work. He will continue to move. He will continue to speak. The same God that spoke the world into creation will speak to your heart and to your life today. Will you listen to him? Will you hear him? This God who finally tuned the universe, who finally tuned your anatomy, he sent his own son to live among us. Can you think of that? The infinite becoming finite. The author wrote himself into the story as the Hebrew, as, as the hero and the Hebrew. The authors in the New Testament show us over and over again that Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 1. In the beginning, he was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome, and it will not overcome, church. Are you walking in that darkness? Jesus says... I am the light of the world. He calls us out of darkness. He is the light of God shining into the darkness, bringing order out of chaos. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Bible starts with light without a sun, but it ends with light coming from the son of God. Revelation 21 says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. Christ magnified, shining forth into the darkness. Friends, when you understand who Jesus is, he is not just a person. He was with God in the beginning. When you understand the significance of the creator God, the infinite God sending his own son to bear flesh, you take a new perspective on things. The author of life was betrayed. The creator, the creative force of the universe was hung on a cross, crucified, dead, buried, and he rose again, amen? He rose again. He died for those he created because he loves us. And he desires to invite us into the love of the Trinity. And so today, as we take communion, we take communion every week at our church. As we take this communion meal, I want you to take it with that understanding that Jesus wasn't just this dude who died, but he's a member of the Trinity. He's the light of the the world. He's the word of God. And he died for you because he desires to know you. He desires to live for you. So church, let's stand, let's sing praises to our God who created the universe. Father, as we 
sing praises to your name. We pray that our hearts will be filled with joy. Our minds will be set on you. That we'll understand your created works and that we'll understand you more closely, more intimately. Fathers, we take this meal, prepare our hearts and help us to hear from you, to see you face to face, to understand your kindness and your mercy, your grace and your kindness. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.